0: If you'd like to follow along in the bulletin or uh, with your Bibles, we're looking at 1 Corinthians, which is a great resurrection chapter. And we're going to be beginning a study in 1 Corinthians uh, starting next week. So we're, we're jumping ahead in the story. But 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask for help that we would know, not just in our our minds, but down deep in our hearts, we would know how amazing these truths are and that they would be real and personal to us. And so we ask that you would work in us and ask that you would help me to proclaim these things, Uh, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think the only time we like the idea of something being closed, when you hear of something being closed, it's always bad news except when they say school's closed tomorrow because of snow. And there actually is a chance of snow tomorrow morning for about two hours, but it's not gonna stick. But can you imagine if it actually snowed? But typically when you hear of something being closed, it's like the worst possible news. You know, you, you go to a restaurant, you have family in from out of town, you go to this restaurant and you get there and there's a sign out front that says, closed due to renovations. You know, you, you the, the terrible ending to Chevy Chase's family vacation as this one thing bad after another happens and they finally get to the amusement park only to discover that it's closed you know you take your kids to Toys R Us and it's about to be permanently closed Uh, you you if you go to Bob Evans in Germantown well it's closed and if you've one time recently I was on 370 and if you get on from right where the metro is you come around and you go underneath this crazy circle and you go you know towards 270 well as I'm getting I'm already past the point of no return and I can see the traffic is totally stopped on 370. So I turn on WTOP and they let me know that 370 is closed. And all I, I could have literally just pulled my car over and walked home as long as it took me to wait an hour. And some of you recently were caught on Route 270 when that 18-wheeler, you know, let all that debris across on a on an early on a Monday morning. And some of you probably found out on WTOP that 270 southbound is closed. Terrible feeling to find out something's closed. But on a more serious note. If you apply for a job and you find out that we're no longer receiving applications because the window is closed, or as you get older and opportunities begin to narrow and you find out that things that were once open to you are now closed, or if you're with a loved one and you uh, begin to narrow in on the end of life and you start to realize that the options of medications and hope of treatment are closed, and the most dreaded words that you hear from the doctor is, There's nothing more that we can do. And the worst closure of all is the closure of the casket. And if we're cremated, then our closure is we become fertilizer somewhere as our ashes get sprinkled. And you see what Paul is addressing here is he's dealing with this logical premise. This worldview that there is no resurrection from the dead, it's closed. It's a closed system. There is nothing supernatural. This is it. And so I want to consider what Paul is dealing with. You know, there's like six times in the book of Corinthians that Paul says, now concerning. And what he's getting at is like this is a massive Q&A time. That the book of Corinthians is people have addressed certain concerns and Paul's writing a letter and giving answers to their questions. And one of the concerns that he's dealing with is that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but they, that's a circle and they have a square that just says, there's no resurrection of the dead, that's our worldview. And, and Paul's trying to present a circle in the midst of the square and it just doesn't fit their, their system. And they're saying, but there's no resurrection from the dead. That's what we believe. And so what Paul is showing in this question and answer is he's writing to say, wait a minute. Consider the domino effect of that worldview. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then seven other dominoes are going to fall from that. And he lists them right here in this text, the seven dominoes that go tinking down. And we'll get to them in a minute. The reality is this. Jesus is the fulcrum of human history. And this, what happened today in history is the most important, significant thing that has ever happened, ever will happen. It's the fulcrum of human history. And on the seesaw, you're either going up or you're going down, whether you believe or not. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead and there is no resurrection, Paul goes on to say, if the dead aren't raised, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And there's actually on Sports Talk Radio, there's a commercial for a bar that actually uses that verse. We're going to die, so let's just eat and drink. Come on over to our bar. I'm like, golly. But if he has been raised from the dead, Paul goes on to verse 34 and says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. And don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So either we eat and drink, tomorrow we die, or we wake up from our drunken stupor and we quit sinning, depending on where we fall out on the fulcrum of human history. Are we going up or are we going down? And earlier in the service, we read from this, the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon is considering life under the sun, life in a closed system. If that's all there is, life under the sun, if that's it, which he talks about 29 times in the book. And then the logical outworking for Solomon is 35 times to declare meaningless, vanity, empty. It's this Hebrew word, havel, and it means this, it's a profound word, it means (laughs) (laughs) That's what it means, it means life is nothing. It is empty, there's nothing to it. And if that's really true, if life is a closed system and this is it, well, let me give you a one paragraph understanding of Ecclesiastes. This is from Doug Wilson's commentary and he summarizes Ecclesiastes in a paragraph. And you should read the book if you've never read it, but here it is. Nothing is really new. Everything is vain, work is distressing, Labor is hateful because somebody else is gonna get the fruit of it. A fool might benefit from the benefit of, of your work. Church and state are together corrupt. Men are oppressed. The unborn are at a distinct advantage. Popularity is in constant flux. Riches destroy their owners. The wealthy are unable to use their wealth. Future generations are unknowable. Men rule others and destroy themselves. Work is incomprehensible. Both good and evil men die. Our emotions perish with us. Time and chance happens to them all. Ungrateful men despise the benefits of wisdom. Rulers establish blind folly of egalitarianism. And he summarizes to say all of this furious activity of the world is about as meaningful as the halftime frenzy of the Super Bowl. That's Ecclesiastes for you. How are you feeling? Because this is the reality of where this this closed system worldview. If there's no resurrection from the dead, let's eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Does this matter to you? Because the idea of of the book of Ecclesiastes is just, it's all things are weary. You pay your bills this month, guess what you're doing next month? Pay your bills. You mow your yard this week, guess what you're doing next week? Mowing your yard. Your haircut looks good for a week, guess what you're doing three weeks later? You're cutting your hair again. You fill up your car, you fill it again. You weed your garden, you weed it again. You do the dishes. Oh, we're, we're wise now. We've got this thing called the dishwasher. That means we have more of the process. We put the dishes in the dishwasher dishwasher if the kids ever put them in for you that'd be great but then when it's done you you take them out and you put them up in the cupboards then you pull them down and it's the endless cycle you grab the laundry that's dirty you start it in the washing machine you move it to the dryer you fold it and you start the process again and you just feel like it's an endless cycle one preacher described it. He said the earth is like an exercise bike and each generation thinks they're gonna ride somewhere by riding harder and they don't realize that the exercise bike sits still. It's going nowhere. The new millennium will take, will take somewhere. Every, everything is so great now and he says we're driving around in a cul-de-sac. Movement is not necessarily progress. And what Ecclesiastes is telling us is the sun is rising, the sun is setting. There's progress, all right, but the movement is always the same. Its predictability is painful. The rivers are still here. The oceans are still here. But we are going to be mulch and fertilizer for the trees that are still here. That's where if you don't believe in a resurrection, then it's, there's no hope. You see, it's, Ecclesiastes is just agreeing with what's stated in other places in our world. In literature, Shakespeare articulates this a couple times. As you like it, he says, all the world's a stage and all the men and women, merely players, they have their exits and their entrances. And as one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven stages. And then Shakespeare goes through these seven stages. Infancy, schoolboy, lover, soldier, middle age decline in old age. And the last scene of all, presents its life as toothless, sightless, tasteless, meaningless. Or Macbeth's bitter words, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. What about you this morning? Does your life matter? Do you have purpose? You know, I think a lot of people, if, if I was to say, hey, I want to have breakfast with you this week, if I, I want to meet with you, you would want to know why. What's the purpose? Why are we meeting? Because we are busy people, and we have busy jobs. And so if I'm going to have any time with you, I better convince you of why we need to do this. And yet, so many people can't even give the why as to why they even exist, and yet I gotta give a wife for even having breakfast and, and, and you know, to carve out any time. And yet, why do you exist? Why are you here? Why are you so busy? Why are you doing this job? Is it just sound and fury signifying nothing? Is it city slickers, what Billy Crystal talked about when, he, when they put him in front of a fourth grade class and they said, you know, why are you here? You know, tell us about your job. And, and Billy Crystal just says to these kids, value this time in your life, kids. This is the time when you have choices. It goes by fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. In your 30s, you make a little money, raise a family, and wonder, what happened to my 20s? In your 40s, you grow a pot belly and another chin. The music starts to get too loud, and one of your old girlfriends becomes a grandmother. In your 50s, you have a minor minor surgery, and you call it a procedure. In your 60s, you have a major surgery, and the music's still loud, but that doesn't matter because you can no longer hear it. In your 70s, you and your wife move to Florida and you start having dinner at 2 in the afternoon, lunch at 10 in the morning, and breakfast the night before. <laughs> you spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate low-fat yogurt and wondering, how come the kids don't call? In your 80s, you have a major stroke. You end up babbling to a Jamaican nurse whom your wife can't stand, but you end up, who you end up calling mama. That's What is Hollywood telling us there? It's expressing this meaninglessness. Or take science. Stephen Jay Gould's classic quote where he says, We're here. This is our existence. Here it is because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because comets struck the earth and wiped out the dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available, so thank your lucky stars, in a literal sense, because the earth never froze entirely during the Ice Age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa about a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for higher answers, but none exist. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. Do you find that liberating and exhilarating? This is a worldview that says you came from a cosmic accident. You're an oops child of the universe coming from primordial ooze. And if your origin is really from nothing and your destiny is really ending in nothing, then admit the obvious that your life really is nothing. And yet nobody's teaching their kids that. Do you teach your kids that you're nothing? You're an oops child of the universe? No. Yet we're struggling in this life. Life magazine some years ago did a publication about a search for meaning. And there was this taxi driver named Jose Martinez who just nailed it. Of how dreadful it is if there's really no hope. If there is no resurrection... This is what he said, we're here to die, just live and die. I live driving a cab, I do some fishing, take my girl out, pay taxes, do a little reading and then get ready to drop dead. You gotta be strong about it, life's a big fake, nobody gives a damn, you're rich or you're poor, you're here or you're gone, you're like the wind and you're gone and other people will come, it's too late to make it better, everybody's fed up, I can't believe in nothing no more, people have no pride, people have no pe- fear, people are, aren't scared, people only care about one thing and that's money. We're gonna destroy ourselves, nothing we can do about it. The only cure for this world's illness is nuclear war. Wipe everything out and start over. We've become like a cornered animal fighting for survival. Life is nothing. And that's why we could say, even if you can't believe in the resurrection this morning, wouldn't you want it to be true? Wouldn't you want it to be true to say something to Jose Martinez? You see, and what Paul is getting at here is he's dealing with this square worldview of this closed system. And he's saying, if there is no resurrection, if that's really the case, then Christ hasn't been raised. He says that twice in verse 14 and 16. He's saying, our preaching is vain. Our faith is vain. We're misrepresenting God. You're still in your sins, Everybody who's died has perished, they're, they're done, and we're to be pitied. That's a seven-fold logical domino argument. If there is no resurrection of the dead, there's the worldview that comes from that. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, the dominoes get flipped completely the other way. So all those seven things that were just said If Christ has been raised from the dead, then our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. We are not misrepresenting God. We are no longer in our sins. Everybody who's died hasn't perished. Their life has just begun. We are not to be pitied, we are to be envied. If you flip the dominoes, everything changes. You see, either the world is closed or it's open because somebody opened it. Is there a wrinkle in time? Are the fairy tales true? They lived happily ever after? Could there be an empty tomb? Could Jesus have blown a hole through this closed system? If he got out, then we can get out. Theologian by the name of CFD Mole Poor guy. He says this, the the miraculous emergence of the church in the face of brutal Roman persecution rips a great hole in history, a hole the size and shape of resurrection. You see, consider what Paul has done here at the beginning is he gives seven arguments of why the resurrection is true. He gives seven evidences and then he gives seven reasons why their logic doesn't work. And the seven evidences that he gives is he argues straight from, from these, there's the appearances of Christ. He first of all gives the first argument is that he died, was buried, it was according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So his first argument is this was predicted in the Bible. the Bible predicted his death, and the Bible predicted his resurrection on the third day. And you say, well where's that in the Bible? Well, there's a couple places in the Bible that speak of the resurrection. If you look at Daniel 12 two if you look at acts 20 or um, uh, isaiah 2619 we have references to the dead being raised. Well, how are they raised and then we have these these pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. Of him sitting at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, Psalm 110. Of him being enthroned as king forever in Psalm 2. There's this picture of Christ that all the nations will remember and worship the Lord and Jesus taking delight and satisfaction in seeing his offspring, Isaiah 53. How does that happen without a resurrection? You see, so he gives this argument that first of all, it's according to the scriptures. And then he argues that he appeared to Cephas. Then he appeared to the 12. Then he appeared to 500. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. That's seven different arguments that he's giving. You see, the evidence for the resurrection has to be seriously wrestled with. You may be here today and say, well, I've never really thought about these things before. Well, there's three things you've got to contemplate. There's three things about the resurrection. The first is there's an empty tomb. That's a problem. Even the other side, a hostile source, admits they stole his body. Just produce his body, produce the bones. And the, the, the story of the resurrection wouldn't have lived for one day or one hour if there's not an empty tomb. Empty tomb, because it started in the same city, same location, same time. And he's saying, go and talk to these witnesses. We footnoted them for you. Go and talk to them. It wouldn't have survived an hour if he didn't have an empty tomb. But we've got an empty tomb. So that's that's problem number one for the skeptic. And problem number two is now we have appearance stories, and lots of them. And people that were hostile. I will never believe, says Thomas. And even James, the half-brother of Jesus, was hostile. And these are changed lives. And Paul was, was a terrorist going about killing Christians. And now he's writing for Christianity. He's writing about Christ and his resurrection. So we have appearances. So you have empty tomb. We have people that say we've seen him and we've had meal with him. We've, we've eaten fish with him. We've... And then the last is change lives. Lives were completely changed. The Roman world is turned upside down and people are willing to die for their faith and all of these apostles are killed for their faith except for John. And they all die brutal deaths and liars just don't make good martyrs. So what do we do with these three pieces of evidence? You say, well, it's... A, it's if you start to factor up your different arguments against it, they really don't don't wash. These stories were written too soon, from the same place. So Paul is saying our preaching is not in vain. This this proclamation, the way that news worked in that world of A.K. Russo, is that you know we they didn't have Facebook and they didn't have the news, they didn't have CNN or C-SPAN that could cover these things and just boom, get it out to the world. So when they would proclaim something, if there was a a battle, I'm sure you've heard of the battle of marathon because we have a marathon runner that runs 26.2 miles and when he gets to the other end, he gives a proclamation, he gives a K-Russo, we won, boom, and then he dies. But that's what it meant. They were giving a proclamation of news And Paul is going around with his life and giving this news. Tell me, how do you explain Paul's life without the resurrection? He says, I'm often in the danger of death in 2 Corinthians. Five times, I received 39 lashes. Five times, his back is opened up and 39 lashes. Can you imagine what the guards are saying when they looked at his back for the fifth time and they're seeing over 200 scars? What is this guy doing? I mean, maybe he just is convinced that there's a resurrection, looking at the, at, at the scars on his back. He says, five times I received 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Do you do that for something that's a lie? Do you do that for something that you half heartedly believe in? No. He believed it and he was willing to give neck to the sword. This is how he ultimately died. Because his preaching was not in vain. He knew that his labor in the Lord was not in vain. And so he was steadfast, immovable, and pressing on. And now our faith is not in vain. He's saying if the resurrection isn't true, then our faith is in vain. Here's the reality. Christianity is not about, it's not built on ethics It's not built on philosophy, psychology, anthropology, any of these other fields. It's built on one field first of all, and it's history. It's the fulcrum of history. Christianity is tied to history. If this isn't true, then chuck it. But if it is true, then chuck everything out, because this is the most important thing in the whole world, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Broken a hole in history, he's returning, and we'll all give an account to him. See, our faith is contingent on that. That's why the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We laugh when we hear about Ponce de Leon looking for a fountain of youth. He never found it. And then we find out reading history later that he was never looking for it. That was just a myth created in history. How foolish is that? But we have found a fountain of youth. Jesus Christ raised from the dead in time, space, and history, and our faith is not in vain. For, Paul says, if this isn't true, we're misrepresenting God. He's saying, we're not just mistaken. We are willful, intentional liars, unless this is true. You see, N.T. Wright put it like this. He's a great scholar on the resurrection. He says, he says, if there was an empty tomb and there had been no sightings, people would have believed the body was stolen. If there had only been eyewitnesses claiming to have seen him from the tomb, but the tomb still had the body in it and everybody would would have believed they were hallucinating. Only if all these were true, the empty tomb, the sightings, and the permanent changed lives of the witnesses could Christianity have ever begun. You see, even Anthony Flew, who was an atheist philosopher, he said this about the resurrection of Christ. This is an atheist. He later became a theist, never became a Christian. But Anthony Flew said this, the evidence for the resurrection is better than the claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity from the evidence offered for the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events. You see, when you see something incredible, when you witness something incredible, what do you do? What do you do? If you see something incredible, what do you do? I mean, in our day and age, we instantly, you, you don't want to witness it by yourself. I mean, that's just like a terrible thing, right? Have you have seen something that's incredible? I mean, I once, I, I caught this great big huge bass and I have no evidence of it now to show you except for my son who, who saw it. But my camera was so old school that it would never transfer it out of that. And it was just this massive bass but it, it'll always live as the legend of, yeah, 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 the fish, you know, because you, where's the evidence? Well, today we get out our cell phones. We capture it. We video it. We call somebody. We tell others. You know, when we were out in, out in Wyoming, and we were not, this is when we went on this bike trip. Some of you guys may not know about this, but some of the guys from the church went out, and we did this incredible bike trip out west, And we went into Yellowstone Park. But this was outside of Yellowstone Park where there's not near as many buffalo. And maybe we got a picture to show it because we all got out our cameras that we were that close off a beaten path looking for a waterfall. And this guy was all of a sudden laying down. But when I hit the brakes so hard to stop and I kind of skidded to a halt, we kind of awoke him. And he stood up and this is where the story becomes a little legendary because I, don't, I couldn't find the picture of, he turned towards us, and now we're from me closer to Mike <clears throat> to this buffalo, and he took his hoof, and he hoofed, and when he hoofed, I skidded wheels again, high-tailing out of there. <clears throat> and he bucked with his front, and he bucked with his back, and onto the woods he went but it's a true story because we have a picture of it, right? So we could tell our friends, we were that close to a buffalo in the wild. Well, we were proclaiming that. Well, I can tell you this, what the disciples were doing, this was way before they had cameras. This is way before they had ways to to do this, so all they could do is go and and went from town to town and village to village, and they went and proclaimed that they keep saying throughout the book of Acts, we are witnesses, we are witnesses. You put him to to death, God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses, we are eyewitnesses, and to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, and it's the proof of our salvation." Sam Alberry puts it like this in his book, Lifted. He says, the Jesus in whom we believe died and was buried, rose again, and was seen. And he says, and what the burial was to his death, the appearances were to his resurrection. You see, the death of Christ was physically attested by his burial, and the resurrection was physically attested by his appearances. The burial proves that he died. Being seen proves that he rose again. And what's interesting is like all these other religions, they'll have these shrines, okay, where people like Muhammad died at age 61 in Medina in 632 AD, and his tomb is visited by tens of thousands of Muslims every year. Nobody visits Jesus' tomb, or they do to try to make a little money, but we don't even know where it is. There's no veneration. If Jesus' bones were discovered under the soil in Jerusalem, Christianity is a joke. It's over. There's nothing. How in the world can you explain how the Sabbath was changed from Saturday to Sunday? I mean you have a whole fourth commandment, and all of a sudden now the church is worshiping on Sunday. How can you explain this? The only explanation is resurrection, the resurrection on the first day of the week. He died for our sins and he was raised for our justification. If, if he didn't rise from the dead, <clears throat> then we are still in our sins and there's no hope. Think about this quote. Sam Albury again, he says this. <clears throat> he says, what we need to see is this. The resurrection is the consequence and demonstration of our salvation because death is the consequence, consequence and demonstration of our sin. You see, the wages of sin is death. And so when Jesus died on the the cross, we see that, that, again, death is the consequence and demonstration of sin. But when he's raised from the dead, now we're seeing the consequence and demonstration of salvation, of eternal life being granted, of eternal life being won for us, our salvation being won. You see... What the Apostle Paul is arguing is that everyone who has died has perished if the resurrection is true. If the resurrection isn't true, then there's no hope. All the people that have died before us will never see our loved ones again. This is it. And let me tell you, think about if you didn't have any hope that there was a resurrection, That you would, and your hope isn't just built on some Fig Newton of your imagination that, oh, I'm going to see them again. How do you know? We know because Christ has been raised, and he has promised that we too will be raised. My dad fell this week out of his wheelchair. I know many of you prayed for my, my dad, and they're still praying. I appreciate that. And I was there at the house. I was actually in the shower, and the scream that I heard took me back like 30 years ago when my dad hurt his back so bad that he couldn't get off the ground and he had to scream for help. And the exact type of scream, when you hear your name at that vocal decibel level, you know instantly there's trouble. And it just reminded me of when I had to call EMS in high school for the the medics to get my dad. Well, he's on the floor and I had to get him and he had to have surgery on his hip. And as he was going before the surgery, we just had this very frank and real conversation about well, what if there's complications with this surgery? Um, I mean, it's very interesting. My, my brother's father-in-law has had ALS and they did a simple procedure and they took him under and he never came back. And so now here's my dad getting ready to go under. What if he doesn't come back? And he just has this, and he's just saying, I wanna go home and it's not because I don't love you. He's saying this to my mom. And he's just as as sure as like, he knows. If the resurrection isn't true, then this is an absolutely terrifying, horrifying experience that I'm going under and I might not come back, but he's just like, if I don't come back, I'm with the Lord. So please don't make extra plans to prolong my life if there's some type of complication is what he's saying. We're like, Dad, we got it. We know what your wishes are. This is not a closed system. It's been opened. And so you can have these conversations because he knows he's going to be with the Lord. And this idea of the way the church even talked about the death, they spoke of it as sleep. They've fallen asleep. And the idea of sleep is that you wake to a future awakening of a dawn of a new day because when Christ rose, the church rose from the dead. As in Adam all die, but now in Christ... All are made alive, and so we're not to be pitied. We're to be envied. We have the best thing going. We have the best life now because we know why we're here, and we have eternal life with him. And so what has happened is the resurrection has changed history. Now, you guys know that if you get pregnant, you're gonna have a baby, but it takes a while. It takes nine months. But if you get pregnant, you're gonna have a child. Well, what Paul is arguing here is he's saying the effects of the resurrection is that here's what Christ has done. He's been raised from the dead and it's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep that it's gonna happen to us. We're attached to him. And that because he, he died and was raised, we too will be raised. And then he argues, Then comes the end. Christ is the first fruits and it is coming. Those belong to to Christ and then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, every power. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We're still dying. And not every single, he, he has started this process but the nine months hasn't happened, so to speak. He has started this change in history. He's bringing in his kingdom. But one day, death will be completely vanquished and nobody will ever die. And even those that are still alive, it says when he returns, they'll be called up to meet him in the air, you see. And so the good news this morning is that if you put your trust in Christ, you break through this closed system forever. F.B. Meyer tells a story. He was a, he was a uh, devotional writer, uh, wrote a bunch of books, and he talks about two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn. And the Matterhorn is this massive, beautiful, scary, symmetrical pyramidal pyramid peak with a summit of 14,692 feet and it's between Italy and Switzerland and the Alps. And so these two Germans wanted to climb the Matterhorn, so they hired three guides, and they began their ascent. And they roped themselves together in this order, guide at the bottom, then a traveler, guide, traveler, guide. And they decided they'd climb the Matterhorn, these five. And these men were roped together in that order. And the very first guy at the bottom, the guide lost his footing. And when he came loose, he took number four with him. And when number four popped loose, number three popped loose. And when number three popped loose, number two popped loose. And it's all down to the one guy. And he's the strongest, toughest dude. And he took his ice pick and saw what was happening and he jammed it in there and he hung on. And he grabbed on and all four of those guys were saved because of the one guy who was tied in at the top. In Adam all die. You're related to that first guy. And when that first guy pulled off, you're going down with him and you popped off with him. And you're going and you're going. But the last guy, the last Adam, he put his pickaxe in there and he was raised from the dead. And he breaks through. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you break on through to the other side because of Christ. And so we put our trust in him, not in ourselves. And then we have to think of this dominoes being flipped in the whole opposite direction. Flannery O'Connor said this, for me, it is the virgin birth, the incarnation, The resurrection, which are the true laws of the flesh and the physical. Death, decay, and destruction are the suspension of these laws. I'm always astonished at the emphasis the church puts on the body. It's not the soul that's going to rise, but the body which will be glorified. Maybe we just need to think totally differently. Jesus has been raised. Put your trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, fill us with hope, joy, and peace in believing that it is true. Lord, we long for the new creation, and we thank you that you care about bodies and this world, and we thank you that you're coming back and making all things new right here on this planet, and we long for that day. We eagerly await as we inwardly groan, longing for that new creation. And so fill us with patience, help us to persevere, and even as we grieve, we don't grieve without hope. Give us strength, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.